Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. In 1911, Ishii, the last Stone Age Indian, walked into the community of Oroville, California, opening an anthropologic window into the lives of native Californians that remains open today. In this edition of Radio Curious, we'll visit with Professor Oren Starn, an anthropologist at Duke University and the author of Ishii's Brain in Search of the Last Wild Indian. Although Ishii's brain and the ashes from his cremation were not repatriated and properly buried until approximately 84 years after his death, his brain carried the fascinating story of life in California as it existed for about 11,000 years until about 150 years ago. I spoke with Oren Starn from his office at Duke University and asked him to begin by describing what happened to Ishii's people during the first years of the California Gold Rush. I think Ishii's story is an especially dramatic and unique one. In a nutshell, what had happened was that in the 1840s and 50s, white settlers were moving into the mountains and then into the valleys of California. And uh, Ishii's people, the Yahi, were one of many California tribes uh, living at that time. Uh, most of the rest of his tri- Yahi tribe uh, was hunted down and, and killed in those very violent first years of the gold rush. And eventually, Ishii and a couple of others went into hiding in a very remote uh, canyon just above the Sacramento Valley, the canyon of Deer Creek. There, Ishii and these other last survivors had a, had a kind of hideout uh, beneath the cliffs that they called Grizzly Bear's Hiding Place. And they managed to elude capture, even detection, for almost 50 years there. Last, in 1911, Ishii was captured trying to steal a bit of meat in the slaughterhouse in a town called Oroville, uh, north of Sacramento. And he was brought to live in the Anthropology Museum in San Francisco, uh, which is on, was then on Parnassus Heights, where the UC Medical Center is now located, overlooking Golden Gate Park. And he lived there for five years and finally uh, passed away in 1916. The whole story of his discovery it caused a media sensation at the time because it seemed that here was a man who'd walked straight out of the Stone Age, who dressed in skins, who hunted with a bow and arrow. And in fact, Ishii uh, didn't speak any English. He spoke only his native language, Yahi. He was just one voice into a culture that no longer existed, and it was a male voice. So there's a lot that may not have been said or that would be reinterpreted had it been said by others. That's true, and one of the things that's fascinated me about Ishii is how much we can't know about his story. We, uh, we actually do know a lot. There were recordings made by the anthropologists in San Francisco of his myths, uh, Ishii uh, showed the anthropologist how he had lived in the wild and how he made bows and arrows and how he made acorn mush, how he had managed to survive for, for so many years in the wild. Yet, again, there are these mysteries and gaps in Ishii's story. 
uh, for instance, uh, the very elemental-seeming matter of his name. Ishii is not the real name of the man who lived for 40 years in the wilds of California. Is there any reference to what he called himself? What happened was, for the Yahi people, and this is true for some other tribes in California, uh, your personal name was a, was a private matter. It wasn't something that you revealed to, certainly, to strangers. And so when Ishii uh, came to live in San Francisco, uh, he didn't tell anybody his personal name, and the anthropologists, among them Alfred Krober, who was the founder of the UC Berkeley Anthropology Department, didn't press him for his real name. And by mutual agreement, uh, he came to be known as Ishii, which is the word in the Yahi language for man. There's also some discrepancy about the name of the group Yahi, where that came from. The matter of names and of tribal names is a very complicated one in Native California in general. Sometimes uh, local groups didn't exactly have names for themselves. They simply referred to themselves by words in their own language that meant something like the people. In the case of the Yahi, uh, Yahi just means people. And it was a name that the anthropologists came up with. It's not altogether clear that Yahi was a word that Ishii or the people that he lived with would have necessarily called themselves. A lot of your research reflects the review and analysis that Theodora Krober made of her husband Alfred Krober's notes. Yet you point out problems in that. Theodore Krober, I think, is a fascinating person in the history of California and the history of the West. Uh, she was a housewife for most of her life and only began to write in the 1950s. And her surprise, uh, her, it was her, her second book and became a surprise bestseller, was a biography of Ishii called Ishii in Two Worlds. And this, in many ways, is a, is a wonderful book and, and helped partly, I think, to rescue Ishii from a kind of obscurity that he'd fallen into in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s. When Ishii came out in 1911, he was a, something of a national celebrity, and the newspapers covered his doings and, and his life uh, of this supposedly Stone Age man in the museum. Uh, but by 1960, when Theodore Krober was writing, um, many people in California certainly had forgotten about Ishii. It was kind of a footnote, strange footnote in the history of the state. And Theodore Krober wrote this biography that brought Ishii back to life in a way. It was a very detailed and in some ways very powerful account of the campaign of extermination that had been waged against Ishii's Yahi people and of Ishii's life as a so-called museum Indian and for the last 40 years, I think, Theodora Krober's Ishii in Two Worlds has been a Bible for Ishii studies. I and most other people who've been interested in Ishii came to know Ishii by reading that book. But one of the things that I found as I began to do research myself and to go to the archives and to poke around in old papers and to uh, trek up into Deer Creek myself, was I came to realize some of the ways in which Theodora had made up parts of uh, her story, had, had taken writerly liberties uh, to add to the drama and pathos of Ishii's story. It was a dramatic story anyway. I'm not, it's not altogether clear that she needed to take those liberties. Um, but just to give you one or two examples, she described Ishii upon his capture in 1911 as dressed in an ancient scrap of covered wagon canvas 
now we have pictures of what Ishii looked like at that point. And in fact, he was wearing a, a long underwear kind of thing that was known as a, a miner's shirt at the time, not an ancient scrap of covered wagon canvas. There wouldn't have been covered wagons in California for more than 50 years. Theodora also said that Ishii was starving and refused to eat in his first days of captivity. In fact, all of the newspaper accounts that we have suggest that he was had been hungry and was happy to eat and ate well in those first few days. What I found in general was that there were ways that Theodora had written in details, events, parts of the story that served her own interest in telling the story in as dramatic and, and heart-rending a way as possible. Again, I do think Ishii's story is dramatic and heart-rending, yet the story turns out to have been more complex in a lot of ways from the one that Theodora Kroeber told in her biography. Oren, I want you to tell us about the complexities of those stories, but before you do that, I want to mention that we're talking with Oren Starn, the author of a recent book called Ishi's Brain, In Search of America's Last Wild Indian. Oren Starn will be in Ukiah on Saturday, March 13th at the Ukiah Civic Center, where there will be a showing of Jed Riffey's documentary film, Ishi, The Last Yahi. He'll also be at the Gallery Bookstore in the village of Mendocino on Friday night, March 12th at 7 in the evening. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Oren, tell us more about Ishi and his culture. Well, I think that the story of Ishii and his culture is a, is a dramatic and complicated one. One of the images that we have of Ishii and his Yahi people, uh, and this is an image that, that Theodore Krober helped to produce, is the image of, the, of Ishii's Yahi people as completely cut off from the rest of the world, as people from the Stone Age, as almost people living on another planet, as living fossils somehow tied to humankind's ancient past. In fact, one of the things that I learned in poking around more into Ishii's story is that the story was more complex than that, that in fact Ishii's Yahi people did have a a series of interactions and contacts uh, with the outside world. Just to give you a couple of examples, Ishii had several Spanish words in his vocabulary. For instance, his word for paper was papelo from the Spanish paper. Uh, his word for cow was vaca from the Spanish vaca. And this suggests the possibility that Ishii's Yahi people way back in the 1840s uh, may have worked actually as ranch hands on some of the ranches in the in the northern Sacramento Valley, which was at that time Mexican California, where Spanish was spoken. Just to give you another example of the what I've found to be the complexity of Ishii's story, when I made it to his uh, hiding place, Grizzly Bear's hiding place, uh, a couple of years ago uh, for the first time, this is a spot on the side of a canyon in the canyon of Deer Creek above the town of Chico. Uh, the first thing that I saw there was a tin of log cabin syrup, uh, a very old tin dating back to the 1890s that was wedged between a tree there. And what I realized, and what other archaeologists who've written about this have learned, is that in fact Ishii's people and Ishii himself were only surviving by stealing and scavenging different food items and other goods from the local white cabins. So 
Ishii's hiding place even today is littered with rusted tin cans, bottles, knives, forks, broken saw blades. Ishii and his people did know the traditional ways of their people, of the Yahi people. Ishii knew how to sing 50 songs in Yahi. He knew how to snare rabbits with milkweed. He was a skilled hunter with a bow and arrow. He knew how to harpoon salmon as they rushed up Deer Creek in the, in the fall. But at the same time, they had uh, and were dependent on all of these different goods that they were taking from white settlers. So in fact, Ishii's life in those long years of hiding was a very mixed and hybrid one of using both traditional ways of survival, but also adapting and incorporating these elements of um, Western material culture. Tell us about Ishii's songs, of which there are recordings now, and what they reveal about the contract that Ishii's tribe had with other tribes of the foothills of the Western Sierras. Well, we're fortunate to have very extensive sound recordings of Ishii himself singing in his own words, in his own Yahi language, of which he was the world's last speaker. We have hours and hours of recordings that were made on an early uh, Victorola gramophone back in 1911 through 1914. Uh, also, a linguist named Edward Sapir worked with Ishii and took down many of his uh, myths and stories. One of the things that's interesting is that Ishii appears to have been very interested and concerned to leave a record of the mythology and the songs of his people. There's one story that I love of Ishii making a recording. Imagine he and a couple of the anthropologists in the basement of the Anthropology Museum in San Francisco in 1914. And at one point, uh, the phone rang, and the anthropologist, Thomas Waterman, who was making the recording with Ishii, got up to answer it. Uh, When Waterman came back into the room, Ishii was very angry with him and said in, in the Yahi tongue, don't do that again. Uh, because Ishii, for reasons that we're not altogether clear about, wanted to leave uh, a, a record of the mythology, of the lore, of the traditions of his people. Almost all of the recordings that were made were in the Yahi language, and we're now able, thanks to the work of a number of different linguists, we do have translations of a number of these, uh, a number of these songs of Ishii's creation story, which involves grizzly bear rabbit, uh, earth maker, and the ways that they brought the world into existence. We also have songs that Ishii knew that were for the hunt, uh, that were sung to accompany uh, the preparation of acorns, and songs that were sung during the stick gambling games that the Yahi people would have played uh, at nights uh, up in the mountains. Ishii did also know, though, as, as, as you mentioned, several songs from other neighboring tribes, among them a couple of songs from the Mountain Maidu people uh, to the southeast of his uh, Yahi region, and ones of the Wintu who lived uh, down in the valley at that time. And this does suggest that contrary to the idea of the Yahi as always having been cut off and isolated from the rest of the world, that they may indeed have had uh, contacts and interrelationships uh, with neighboring tribes. Your book, Ishii's Brain, reveals the story as much as you knew about it and were able to capture and and put down in print of Ishii's life and his people's life. But you also 
weave through the story of what happened to Ishii's body and his brain separated from his body after his death and the eventual repatriation. Most of what we'd known about Ishii had to do with his life in the wild and the whole story of how he had managed to survive for so many decades and then his life in San Francisco and how he had lived in the museum for five years in San Francisco until his death in 1916. But it turns out that there was a whole part of the story that for many years was was unknown, that nobody fully understood or knew about. And this is the fact that uh, after he died, uh, Ishii, and this was very much against his wishes, uh, had an autopsy performed on his body. Uh, and his brain uh, was removed and pickled as a kind of grotesque uh, specimen uh, for scientific study. How did that occur? Well, the story is, is a complicated one. Alfred Krober, the founder of the UC Berkeley Anthropology Department and Ishii's main guardian in San Francisco, was away in New York when Ishii died in March of 1916. And uh, a couple of other people in San Francisco who had been caring for and looking after Ishii uh, decided in the end that contrary to Krober's wishes, Krober didn't even want an autopsy to be performed, that Ishii's brain should be removed and that an autopsy should also be performed on Ishii to take measurements uh, of his body. It's paradoxical, I think, that the person who appears to have been most behind the preserving of Ishii's brain and the dissection of his body, again, against Ishii's own wishes, was a doctor named Saxton Pope. Uh, Pope was a famous surgeon at the time at the UC San Francisco Hospital. Uh, he was a very handsome, outgoing man who was had many talents, was a violin player and a amateur musician and a doctor to Gene Harlow and other movie stars who would come up to see him from Hollywood. And Pope had struck up a kind of friendship with Ishii. They would go out and, uh, and walk together in Golden Gate Park, and they particularly enjoyed uh, shooting the bow and arrow together and would do target practice and go out hunting together. And when Ishii died, uh, Pope, on the one hand, felt was 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 devastated by his friend's death, but at the same time he believed that a record should be made of Ishii's body, uh, that Ishii was a unique kind of specimen as the last member of his tribe, and that therefore his brain should be cut out and saved against Ishii's own wishes. One of the paradoxical things then, or that that the ironies of of what happened, is it was actually a person who who cared in his own way a great deal about Ishii who was responsible for the fact that his uh, brain was pickled and preserved. What does the study of Ishii and his people tell us about ourselves now? Well, I think, in a way, the ways that our images of Ishii and our understanding of Ishii and his story have changed reflect the way that America has changed and that our own understandings of ourselves and of others have changed. Back in the 1850s and 60s, when the West was being forcibly settled by white pioneers, there was this idea of Ishii's Yahi people as the evil, bloodthirsty, 
uh, redskins who had to be exterminated or removed to reservations. But was that idea limited to the Yahi? No, it was. This is one of the, you know, the 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 too often forgotten parts of the history of California, namely the fact that California was home to uh, almost 500 different Indian groups speaking more than 100 different languages, and that with the gold rush in 1849 and with the settlement of California by Anglo pioneers, that a pretty massive campaign of extermination and removal was waged against tribes throughout, especially Northern California. This is a time when the, some counties offered uh, bounties on Indian scalps, including in, in, in Mendocino, among other places, uh, when Indians were rounded up and sent to reservations, and when what today I think we'd call paramilitaries, uh, in other words, armed groups of Indian hunters would head up to the hills in search of Indians. So in a way that what happened to Ishii and his people is really symbolic of what happened to a lot of Indian peoples in that, in that very violent uh, time in the first years of statehood. Is there more to this story that is not yet revealed, indications of, of the meaning of Ishii's life and, and of his songs, considering that we only have two eyes as the window into this culture? Well, my sense is that research about Ishii and about that moment in the history in California will continue. There's still important work going on by linguists who are trying to figure out the full meaning of some of Ishii's songs. There's new research that's being done into the history of, of uh, white Indian relations in the 1850s and 1860s. Uh, up in the hills of, above the Sacramento Valley. So I think that uh, Ishii is likely to remain an object of curiosity, a figure who people are interested in and want to, to know more about. My own feeling, though, is that there's always a part of Ishii that will remain unknowable and, and ungraspable. There are these gaps in the story. There are these things, again, what his name was among them, that I don't think that we'll ever, ever really figure out. And I think in a way that one of Ishii's appeals over the decades, one of the reasons why he's fascinated people so much is precisely because there are these mysteries about him, these things that we, that we can't quite know. How exactly did he manage to hide up in the canyons of Northern California for so many years? Remember, this is a Ishii and perhaps a couple of others are hiding just 10 or 15 miles from the town of Chico, California, which has a Sears Roebuck, which has electric lights, uh, which has cars and a, and, a, and a baseball team. And this is in 1910, 1911. This is in the first decade of the 20th century. And yet here is this group, this small group, these last holdouts of the conquest of North America uh, Alfred Kroeber called the Yahi the last free Indians in North America. I'm not sure I entirely agree with him in the sense that Ishii and his people were not exactly free. They were on the run and in hiding. But I think that there is this dimension of drama and, and mystery to the story uh, that's likely to make it one that people are going to continue to ponder 
and to try to make sense of in, in years to come. Tell us about the uh, communication, the language that was developed between Ishii and uh, Alfred Krober and the others at the Anthropology Museum in San Francisco while Ishii was living there. Well, the anthropologists had worked earlier on with several speakers of a of the the northern Yana language, uh, which was a language quite closely related to Ishii's Yahi language. They were about as different as as French to Spanish. And in the first weeks in San Francisco, an old northern Yana man named Sam Botwi was brought down from Reading as a translator for Ishii. He apparently really couldn't understand everything that Ishii said, but again, the similarities between their two languages were about that between Spanish and, and French, say, and Botwi was able to do some valuable translating. The anthropologists really never learned Yahi. Uh, they really never learned to speak Ishii's language. It was really Ishii who did the adapting and the learning. He learned English. He learned about uh, 250 words of English. He knew enough English to make himself understood, to have conversations. He didn't have a big enough vocabulary to speak in, in detail and in nuance in the kind of way that he would have in, in Yahi. There are some wonderful stories about Ishii. And one of the things that he used to do was just walk around the neighborhood, around the museum of Parnassus Heights, and he would stop and and visit with people there. He was a well-known neighborhood character. And uh, one woman, old herself now, recalls how Ishii would sometimes stop by and sit on their stoop on one of those hilly San Francisco streets uh, with this woman's old grandmother. And this old uh, woman would have, and Ishii would have quite animated conversations with Ishii and his um, 250 words of English and this, uh, this old white woman who apparently was hard of hearing and had a hard time understanding even people who spoke perfect English. And yet the image of these two people, of this older woman and of Ishii chatting and enjoying each other's company. So Ishii did learn enough English to... Uh, to communicate and to to navigate uh, in the white world. Warren Starn, I want to thank you very much for joining us on Radio Curious. And before we close, can you tell us about an interesting book that you've read lately? One terrific book that I just finished is Anne Fadiman's When the Spirit Catches You, You Fall Down, which is a book about uh, a Hmong child in the Central Valley of California. It's, a, it's another uh, story, like the story of Ishii, that's very much a story about California, and in this case about the conflicts and attempts at mutual understanding between uh, Hmong immigrants in the town of Merced and the white doctors there that are trying to save uh, a Hmong child. I found this both a, a beautifully written book and also a really interesting and sensitive reflection about the issues of cross-cultural conflict and understanding. Oren Starn, thank you very much for joining us on Radio Curious. Thank you. Oren Starn is the author of Ishii's Brain, In Search of America's Last Wild Indian. The book that he recommends is When the Spirit Catches You, You Fall Down by Anne Fadiman. Copies of this and other editions of Radio Curious are available. There are over 750 archives on our website, 
RadioCurious.org. And I'm honored to tell you that Radio Curious is now part of the collection at the Library of Congress. We appreciate your cards, ideas, and letters, and do enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The postal address is 700 West Smith Street, Ukiah, California, 95482. The phone is 707-621-5075. Ignacio Ayala is the assistant producer. I'm host and producer, Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.